Hey, you guys, Scott Horton here to remind you that it's fun drive time at the Institute right now. We only do this twice a year, but it's got to be done. And I'm proud to do it, too. We've got an incredible crew of the best writers, authors, and podcasters in the libertarian movement. From Jim Bovard, Lori Calhoun, Tom Woods, and Ted Carpenter, to Keith Knight, Kyle Anzalone, Hunter Dorensis, Connor Freeman, and all the rest of the guys. It's the best team around. We've published three books this year. Keith Knight's Voluntarist Handbook, Lori Calhoun's Questioning the COVID Company Line, and Joseph Solis Mullins, The Fake China Threat. And here any day now, we will be publishing Thomas E. Wood's Diary of a Psychosis, Jim Bovard's Last Rites, and Keith Knight's latest, Domestic Imperialism. That makes 13 books so far, with more coming in the new year, including my new one, Provoked, How Washington Started the New Cold War with Russia and the Catastrophe in Ukraine, which, I know, is already overlong and overdue, but I'm working on it, I promise. And which brings me to the point. We don't have a big glass office building in downtown Washington. The money we raise goes straight to payroll and book production costs, and that's about it. The Libertarian Institute is the best bang for your buck in the movement. If you believe in what we're doing, please go to libertarianinstitute.org slash donate for details on how you can help keep us going into the new year and the great kickbacks we offer as well. And we thank you for your support. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com. Slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, you guys, check it out. Brand new from the Institute. This is not an ad. This is the interview. Last Rites, The Death of American Liberty by our senior fellow, the great James Bovard, author of A Lost Rights, The Destruction of American Liberty. This is the update nearly 30 years later, 29. Welcome back to the show, Jim. How you doing? Hey, doing good, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, really happy to have you here. Boy, you sure do write books a lot. Really good ones. <laughs> well, it's the uh, part of the terms of my parole. Yeah, well, good. Um, keep you out and at liberty here with us. So um, also, I uh, am the executive producer of this book. Um, I don't really get the credit other than helping manage all the great guys who helped produce it. But uh, the Libertarian Institute published this thing. And uh, we are so proud of it. And I'm holding it in my hands. And I'll tell you a story, too, Jim, is uh, my buddy Mike from the real world uh, was hanging out over at the house. And, man, he loves him some Bovard. So I says to him, I says, hey, Mike, check it out right there on the shelf. You know, I have them all facing out for when I'm on uh, videos and things like that. Um, and he goes, oh, man, new Bovard. And I go, yeah, dude, that one's for you. And he goes, oh, because I had already explained to him about last rights and, lo and lost rights and this and that and the update and all that. And so he was like, oh, this is it. And he was so stoked and uh, took that book right with him and I'm sure got cracking on it as soon as he got home. So that's great. That's great. Hey, you have quite so a reputation, for, uh, sir. Yeah. The, the, uh, the uh, term I used a while back, you and I were talking about this, and I said that 
Scott Horton is a libertarian dictator who makes the book train run on time. There you go. That's and right. You had done a, a great job of helping, uh, spurring things along. That's a nice term, spurring things along. Yeah. And it was great to work with Ben Parker and Mike Dworsky and Grant Smith and you. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we could overcome all the uh, curses of uh, MS Word and all the other challenges on the road to uh, publication. Yeah, man, we did. And uh, we should all be very proud, especially you, because you wrote the thing. Um, but yeah, uh, great editors in uh, Ben and Mike. And of course, Harley, uh, with all his help in the production and Grant Harley Smith. Harley was great. As Harley always. was really good. I should have mentioned him. Yep. Uh, and Texas, you did, you did mention mention. Grant, but you know, Grant has prepared every book we've ever published, uh, for its final, uh, publication, uh, action Jackson there stages. And, uh, of course is a great friend of the show, uh, over there from the Institute for Research, Middle Eastern Policy. So, um, yeah, man. So tell me last rites, the death of American Liberty. What's it about? Huh. Uh, well, I was just, you know, I had the impression there some people out there who still try to use positive thinking about politicians. <laughs> and, and I was just trying to cure that habit because, uh, you know, positive thinking about your own life, about your own capacity, about your friends, you can do that. You start thinking positive about government, pretty soon you're going to be wearing, uh, you know, fetters and chains and 98% you know, tax rate and some rascal coming by and seizing your bank account and, it just, uh, it, it's its much wiser to be cynical about people with power over you than to be uh, blindly trusting them. You got that right. And man, this thing is such a red pill. All your books are, you know, feeling your pain. You know it's going to be brutal. It's got evil Bill Clinton on the front. And, you know, all of them are like that. You read the thing and you're just like, oh, man. Uh, I've always sung the highest praise, my very favorite up until now, has been attention deficit democracy. You really make sure that when you write these things that they're masterpieces. They're not just full of horrible government atrocities, but it's such good writing and such compelling writing. You make people into Bovardians when they read your book, and I'm speaking for myself, too. Um, so, thanks. You know, it's uh, such uh, thanks. great that's stuff. That's very kind. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, that's very kind. You know... There, is, there, there are so many details out there, uh, so many incriminating details. And what I try to do is uh, put them in, uh, make them kind of entertaining, make them, make them a story that's going to hold people's attention and, if possible, try to work in some comic relief. Yeah, you do. You do a great job of that. And I really try to emulate your style, at least in terms of the absolute pummeling of facts, although I don't really work in the humor as well. But... Uh, I, but I, you do that on the air. Well, yeah, but that's different, I guess. I don't know. And and even then, not that much. But anyway, you are funny as hell. But I, I do try to copy your... Um, your Because the way that you win is, you know, it, the, the real touch of your writing is the humor, right? The comic relief and the fun. And, and it is great prose. But the real convincing part is the truth that you bring in here. This happened... You can't make this stuff go away. This is who these people are and how they treat us. Look at this. Uh, that's what I try to do. And often there is a smoking gun. If you just dig a little bit and you'll, uh, you'll find it something which drives me nuts about some, some of their writing on 
um, you know, uh, uh, pro-freedom writing is that they will, is that, is that authors will simply use what, what they call a thought experiment. Well, let's have a thought experiment like this. And so many times I've been reading something like that and I'm thinking, yeah, well, this is nice, but there was actually a Supreme Court case on the same principle <laughs> that had some great dicta yeah. and some wonderful briefs from the back and forth. And you had the Justice Department lawyers make the most outrageous claims, but instead, instead we're going to read your thought experiment. And it's like, oh, for the love of goodness. Yeah, no. So you definitely take the approach where you go, hey, so these cops did this to this guy next and then... You know, by the end of the thing, everybody's scraping their jaw off the floor. Um, so, wait, let's talk about some of the topics here because, you know, your chapter two here. Well, first of all, I want to say, um, you tell them, what's the title of the piece running at the New York Post where they have this great, oh, here it is, I have it. It's uh, at the New York Post, government tyranny comes to Main Street. And um, that's so great. This is the oldest newspaper in America, founded by Alexander Hamilton, like the Public Enemy song says. And uh, and they've got this great excerpt from the book. So if people want a taste of what kind of writing they're going to get here, that's at the New York Post. Uh, James Bovard. Yeah. Thanks. Um, but, but oh, go ahead. Yeah, and and it's it, uh, the uh, New York Post. One great thing about it, it does not have a paywall, so folks right. can just kind of uh, you know put my name in there, put the book title, whatever New York Post, and that'll pull up the article. Yeah, uh, it's also possible to see. The entire first chapter on the on the Kindle page, because the an entire first chapter is part of the free sample for the book. Um, so, right. but I'm you know I'm having fun getting some um, articles plucking out there. I had a piece that come out a couple hours ago oh, yeah. at the Brownstone Institute, and it's called the Crazy COVID Copulation Exemption. Great, um, yeah, the COVID chapter in here is fantastic. So, two things. First of all. Please send that link to Hunter if it's okay for us to reprint, or at least we'll okay, blog sure. about it or something at sure. the Institute. And then, secondly, you want to talk about that chapter a little bit? Uh, it was, yeah, I mean, I was um, I was amazed to see how the how the country went to hell with the COVID uh, lockdowns. I, I still have memories of there were some uh, good libertarian folks here in Maryland, and I was uh, and there was there was one who worked in who's. Um, had a close uh, relative working for the uh, uh, state government in Annapolis, high up, and uh, you know I, I was I was hearing the heads up and the rumors about well yeah Governor Governor Hogan's going to do the lockdown. I'm thinking I can't freaking believe this. I mean this is what are you going to blow up the entire state? I mean it was just it was it it was like being uh, chained to the front row of a really bad horror movie. Yeah. And, 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 and you're waiting. Okay. So when's the movie over? And this is some uh, horrible, bizarre, you know, bad dream. Right. But no, it wasn't. And it dragged on a long time. It, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, the, um, it, it's almost like an ink blot, an ink blot test as far as how people reacted to some of the COVID mandates. Uh, for instance, I mean, the uh, mask mandates, I mean, uh, the, the, the whole idea that wearing a cloth mask was going to keep you safe was the uh, was one of the biggest loads of BS. But it's interesting. I can look out my window and uh, here in the uh, D.C. suburbs, Maryland suburbs, I see young folks out walking by themselves wearing face masks now. Oh, it's even like that. They've today. been so deeply traumatized. Oh, yeah. That, they, that they're just and it's. 
Folks like that, I would never count to stand up for freedom for almost anything. Yeah, I mean, I see people in Austin, Texas, in their cars alone, wearing masks, even now, including at the airport. Those are the kind of people who wear condoms when they masturbate. (laughs) Of course they do. All right. Seizure fever. One of the first things that made me an anti-government, new world order, conspiracy kook was what in the world is going on where the government can take your property without even charging you with a crime? That sounds like a premeditated plot to destroy our liberty. How are we tolerating this? And then I look up, and everybody's tolerating this. You get cops seizing cash from little old ladies and seizing cars and homes from innocent people, and... If you didn't know it and I told it to you, you would think I must be lying. I must be making up what the government does to the people of this country in the name of the war on drugs, just in terms of the property that they seize. Tell them, Jim. Well, it's not just the war on drugs. I mean, the the government has used these BS legal claims to seize more than $50 billion in private property since 2000. Uh, And government government officials entitled themselves to seize now and prove later or never have to prove anything because they took the property and it's very difficult and very expensive for owners to try to get their property back. This is, this is a, a policy I've been dogging, dogging for 25 years. Actually, no, I've been dogging for 30 years. And there, there are a number of court cases which have come out that really highlight, you know, what's this all about. In 1996, Supreme Court case, uh, Supreme Court ruled on the case of John Bennis, who was a steel worker who picked up a prostitute and parked on a Detroit street while he was driving home from work. Police swooped in on the two of them and uh, just said she was, quote, performing a sex act on him, as the newspapers would say back in the 1990s. <laughs> and this, this is a big uh, policy for the uh, Detroit police. They confiscated nearly 3,000 cars a year this way. It turned out there was a problem because the co-owner of that uh, the uh, 1977 Pontiac was John's wife, Tina Bennis. And she was outraged the government seized her property due to the um, due to her spouse messing around. So this is a case when all the way to the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Rehnquist reeled in a Spanish pirate ship that had attacked U.S. ships in 1822 to justify confiscating the uh, Pontiac, because uh, the chief justice said, well, the, the, the uh, Pontiac, like the pirate ship, it was involved in a criminal offense, so there was no violation of due process in seizing it. Rehnquist never explained the legal equivalence of piracy in the 1820s and oral sex in the 1990s. Yeah, well, but, why should he have to explain? It's a non sequitur. That's why they call it that. Well, yeah, but I mean, but there was, you know, part of what was interesting here was that the, uh, this is one of those Supreme Court rulings which really undermined public safety because Justice Paul, uh, John Paul Stevens dissented and, and he was pointing out that the, uh, that the, um, the, the, that by giving the police uh, the power to confiscate any property that had been used in violation, it was, a very bad precedent. He also pointed out that the, that the decision encouraged reckless driving. And that was because if uh, Bennis had uh, had kept on driving while the hooker earned her fee, the police could not have taken the car. <laughs> and this is not the kind, the kind of behavior the Supreme Court should be encouraging. 
That's so funny. And this keeps coming up with you, right? With these absolute absurdities. Tell them about the time you got thrown out of the Supreme Court. Oh, yeah, that was fun. So I was so that was uh, that was a year before this. And I was running about the um, about no knock raids. Um, I'm pulling that pulling that case out there. Uh, the um, yeah, so it was a, a no knock raid case. And there was it was uh, it was it was a woman whose whose house had been raided by the police, and uh, she was um, uh, she was she was accused of selling a small amount of drugs. Uh, so, but and 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 what the police did was, was justify the search uh, justified the search because they were very worried uh, worried that if they knocked and announced. That they would, the, the person would flush away the drugs. So uh, simply because, and uh, this is something that that the that the um, Clinton administration latched onto. Uh, but so the so the defense lawyer for this woman at the Supreme Court, I was, you know, I was sitting there in the front row of the press box, and so uh, he was scoffing at this argument on no knock raid. So so he says, so what you're saying is that if someone has uh, has a, has a lot more drugs uh, that the police don't need to worry about being flushed. That person has more is entitled to a knock and announce and has more constitutional rights. You know, I thought that was hilarious, but <laughs> I was the only one who laughed loudly in the courtroom. And a couple of minutes later, I had a tap on my shoulder from the bailiff, <laughs> and, and I got thrown out of the press box for laughing. So. Um, Man, I want to make the movie of Bovard no the journalist. That'd be so much fun. Excuse me, yeah, sir. It was, it was uh, made a good story, and, and it was funny because the Washington Post actually and actually wrote that up. And there was a uh, a guy who did a Federal Reporter, something like that. His name was, was Al Kamen, and uh, a Washington Post reporter had seen me get thrown out, and I was chatting with her uh, afterwards, and mentioned that I was doing the story for Playboy. Which I which which I did. It came out, and so um, so, so so I had a call from this guy uh, from the uh, other post report. He says, "Well, uh, why did they throw you out?" I said, "Well, you know, I was laughing at the wrong time." He said, "Well, what were you wearing?" Uh, and, and I said, "Oh yeah." So uh, part of the pretext of throwing me out was was I wasn't wearing a coat and tie, mm. but that was a rule that was never enforced until me. Right. So all of a sudden, you know, my <laughs> ass is out the door. And so the post guy says, well, what were you wearing? I said, I was I was uh, I was wearing, a, you know, a business shirt. He said, what kind of shirt? I said, hey, it was from Lord and Taylor. And <laughs> he had a great line. He said, next time, Bovard should wear Brooks Brooks Brothers. There you go. That's funny. And and I like the argument, too. And of course, the court. I'm spoiling it, but I'm also just guessing because I don't really remember. But the court ruled that, yeah, this makes total sense. That if you have uh, there was, kilos there was, of heroin, was, then it, you couldn't flush that. It makes more sense to give a no-knock warrant to someone who has a smaller amount. Yeah, and, and this is something which, which the uh, courts codified afterwards. And the Clinton administration, I mean, it's one of the things that drives me nuts is this notion that Bill Clinton— was good on civil liberties because Clinton's uh, Justice Department argued in the Supreme Court that that there was, okay, so going back 400 years, there was a knock and announce rule from the early 1600s in Britain, uh, in England, uh, but but the Clinton folks were saying, well, that's kind of nullified because of flush toilets. 
because they didn't yeah. have flush toilets back in 1603. But now we've got flush toilets, so we can't have the knock and announce rule. So it was a hell of a thing that folks had fewer civil liberties as the as the plumbing advanced. Yeah, seriously. And we got to go back to these medieval knaves that were just barely getting over on their lords at sword point for the first time. And we're going to see if we're going to have as much rights as them, please. And of course, yeah, the answer is no. This, and, but, but part of what's fascinating is you go and you sit and you watch all these folks. Okay. So the folks in the Supreme court aren't, uh, uh, aren't wearing the goofy wigs and black robes like they do in, uh, well, except for the justices, the uh, stuff like they do in British courts. But you see all these people and they're, it's, it's almost like they've all got tunnel vision on these very, very narrow legal questions. And they aren't able to recognize that the, that the government is trashing most of the Bill of Rights right now. Yep. Hey, y'all, I got a new coffee sponsor, Mundo's Artisan Coffee at mundosartisancoffee.com. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like my brain is all dried out. I need to pour a hot mug of rich, tasty coffee all over it to get it back working again. Like 10W30 for the noggin. Though not necessary, it helps if the coffee tastes good. Well, Mundo's Artisan Coffee does taste good. They get the best beans from all around the world. And they don't burn them. Support the show and support your brain at MundosArtisanCoffee.com. Just click the link at the right margin at ScottHorton.org. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Well, folks, sad to say, they lied us into war. All of them. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War I, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War II, Libya, Syria, Yemen, all of them. But now you can get the ebook, All the War Lies, by me for free. Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get All the War Lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. Yeah, they have total contempt for it. It's all just about winning. Just like a prosecutor just wants to win, needs that rate, doesn't care what's the truth. None of them do. Um, and look, Some is do. It, Some is, do. All right. Well, maybe in history or something. Hey, tell me, um, is it really true that the government seizes through civil forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture, that is where they do not have to win a criminal victory in court whatsoever, that they steal more than actual private sector criminals do in the country, including... Like, you know, scamming old people on the phone, not just muggings and 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 uh, quickie mart robberies, but all robberies and burglaries. I don't know about all uh, all robberies. I know that burglaries that the, that the government has seized more, confiscated more property without a, a, a criminal conviction through asset forfeiture than the total amount stolen by burglars. Wow. Uh, but if you're looking at all types of property crime, that's probably quite a bit higher. Uh, so, but, uh, it's just some amazing numbers and you sit and you look at some of these cases and it's just, you know, government, uh, government officials pulling stuff out of their butt, but that's all it takes. I wrote a memo. Therefore there it is. Um, 
Yeah, and just to see how this stuff has has uh, permeated and percolated, and they've just have the. Uh, um, there, there are so many shameless legal pretexts that they use, like the dog alerts. Okay, cop mm-hmm. stops you, you know, you he says you got to see your wallet, and you know, so you pull out your wallet, and if some dog wags his tail, it's like, well, that proves you're a drug dealer, and we can take the money. This is literally how the crap goes, and and it, for 30 years, it's been known that there was trace contamination amounts on most U.S. currency. Doesn't matter. The cops can still steal your money. Yep. And of course, the dog doesn't even have to do anything for the cop to say he did. And that's true. The dog could that's make true. any signal for any reason, such as he gets the impression that his master would like him to give a signal right now. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. The whole yeah. thing is so stupid. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was a story that Radley Balco did, uh, and uh, mentioned that there, that there was there was one police department. That simply named his drug dog guilty. Yeah. So, you know, no this, surprise. This saves paperwork. Well, it, it's got the IQ of a two-year-old and it can't speak. But other than that, its testimony is perfectly valid. All right, Jim. Well, listen, I don't want to spoil the whole book for everybody, but I figure I'd give him a little bit more uh, one, God dang, uh, one more taste here. Chapter three, The War on Gun Owners. I guess what we all really want to know is, are they going to take everybody's rifle away? They don't think they can do that, do they? Uh, you know, if they got any brains, they don't think they can do it. But there's a lot of zealots out there who are just obsessively fearful of other people's firearms. And these are people who think everybody should be forced to rely on the government to keep them safe. I mean, this is not a popular review uh, in areas that are have very high crime because people there know that the government's not coming. I mean, um, you know, really bad neighborhoods, you call 911, uh, you know, you, uh, you'd uh, probably get faster faster service from Domino's. Yeah, seriously, I'll call a cab because the cab will come quicker. Uber's uh, even faster, yeah. But <laughs> I don't know if Uber goes in uh, those neighborhoods, but whatever. Yeah. No, you're right. And I guess it's people who mostly are sure that, I mean, when we're talking about just civilian uh, opinion here, It's people who can be very confident that the local sheriff's department actually cares and for their own reasons even to keep people in their neighborhood safe and where who don't really have to worry about or don't feel like they have to worry about it, who sort of project that onto everybody else. Even though some people live out in the country with bears or some people live in a really dangerous, poor neighborhood of whatever color where there's lots of crime, you know? Yeah, there's a, there's a parallel here to the support for the COVID lockdowns from the laptop class, because these are folks who stayed at home. They had full salary. They could watch TV or, or do their Jeffrey Tubin routine half <laughs> the day. And, uh, and they, uh, they didn't have to worry about losing their jobs or being uncomfortable. And you had all the, uh, the, uh, the uh, people in the underclass waiting to bring them their Amazon treats or to bring them their DoorDash meals, or whatever. And it's a little bit the same with the gun owners. A lot of the support for banning guns comes from people that live in very safe neighborhoods who are accosted by the police, as you said. Yeah. So, but now, the thing is, I mean, the whole thing just sounds completely stupid and crazy. I almost feel like a conspiracy nut for talking about because it's just so, it sounds so silly. 
But first time ever for you. First I know. Time but you've ever sounded like that. This time I'm gonna go ahead and go for it, Jim. I think that if I remember right, they actually passed an assault weapons ban in 1993 that applied to semi-automatic rifles. This wasn't an assault rifle ban. That would make sense if words meant things and stuff, but machine guns are already legal and highly regulated, but that assault weapons ban didn't change that, I don't think, or not in any substantive way. It well, outlawed was... what is now the most popular rifle in America, maybe already was, the AR-15. Um, it, it didn't outlaw the AR-15 per se. Uh, it, uh, it was uh, written in a way that, the, uh, that you weren't afterwards, you weren't allowed to have a, I guess, a semi-automatic with bayonet lugs, or you couldn't have a, a semi-automatic that was, uh, had a grenade launcher. And there were some other things, but most of the uh, gun manufacturers were able to work around the, um, the 1994 ban. It did not have much effect as far as uh, prohibiting sales, which is part of the reason that the Biden, that President Biden and a lot of the Democrats are now talking about banning ownership of all semi-automatic firearms, which would be, what, 40, 50 million guns they'd have to round up? And that could be kind of difficult. Yeah, that's crazy. I guess, I mean, I overstated even what I misunderstood there. I guess what I thought was that they had banned all new sales of them and ownership of any new ones or like any civilian one allowed to own one that they bought after a certain date or something like that. Grandfather clause, no, but you're uh, saying uh, it, it really was more cosmetic than that. And they found their well, way around it. It, anyway. was, it, 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 it was more than cosmetic, but, but on the federal level, there was a grandfather clause. Uh, and, uh, most States that had assault weapon bans also grandfathered in, uh, the stuff. But part of the reason it was grandfathered in was because these are, uh, these had been quite minor as far as their effect on uh, homicide numbers, uh, but the um, there was but it, it's part of what was fascinating and how that played out because I was writing a lot about it at the time. I actually there was a, a gun rights rally at the Lincoln Memorial that I spoke at in August 1994. It's still on C-SPAN, and it was uh, some and um, I think I think I was the token moderate there that day. Because <laughs> some of the other speakers were just, they were very, very angry. And I was kind of like, well, you know, there was this Ruby Ridge case, and this is what they did. And the next lady is up from Georgia, like, hey, God, like, okay, you know, I guess it's too late for her to go to go with decaf. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Gordon Liddy uh, was a speaker there, and he was by far the best speaker of the day. And oh, he, he was, was great just, on guns, man. Oh my goodness, he was so good. But a part of part of what was fascinating about this assault weapons ban of 1994 was a Washington Post editorial admitted assault weapons play a part in only a small percentage of crime. The the uh, the, the assault weapons ban is mainly symbolic. Its virtue will be uh, as it as if it turns out as hope a stepping stone to broader gun control. Now post there was post columnist Charles Krauthammer who's beloved by the neoconservatives, puts out an article headlined, Disarm the Citizenry, but not yet. And he says that the real logic of the assault weapons ban, its only justification is to desensitize the public to the regu regulation of weapons in preparation for their ultimate confiscation. Right. It's now, amazing because if you read that sentence without the headline, you say, oh, he sounds like he's on our side. He's warning us. 
But no, no, no <laughs> he's no, Charles Krauthammer, just, man. He's one of them. And and he was beloved by the Washington establishment. This uh, he was uh, pro war is an understatement. But but this is uh, so so these folks, Washington Post, they were explicit in their goals. At the same time that the uh, a lot of the media said, well, people are paranoid if they think that the politicians are going to seize their guns. And in um, you know nowadays you got nitwits like Congressman Eric Swalwell out there saying, well, you know, the government can use nuclear weapons, you know, in case people don't give up their guns. And I'm thinking, Biden oh, says that is. stuff, too. We have F-15s. Uh, yeah. You can't beat us. F-15s. Welcome to the history of the 21st century where America loses to indigenous people with rifles over and over and over again. Yeah. Homemade well, explosives. Just- yeah, um, I, you know, I'm starting to doubt whether Biden is going to learn from history. There was even a meme going around where he was saying, oh, we got F-15 pilots. And then the meme was like, yeah, but they're from here. They're going to bomb their own country and then go home at night? Oh, how's that supposed to work? <laughs> you well, know. this is something which, uh, you know, as far as the question of gun confiscation, um, I mean, I was... Um, I was raised in the mountains of Virginia, and I've gone back to the mountains, various places in the east, a number of times, and shooting the shit with people there. It's just like you know, the government, you know, uh, Washington politicians can say this is prohibited and that's prohibited, this is prohibited. They can't enforce it. There's, I mean, especially now with things like the um, Barrett, uh, you know, sniper rifle, 50 caliber, two mile range, armor piercing. You know, the government's not going to be able to come in there and uh, just dominate like it used to because it would need to bring in Eric Swalwell and his nuclear bombs. And that wouldn't work very well either. Yeah. Well, we saw it there at the Bundy Ranch where armed civilians said no and the cops backed down. They even had a sniper up on the bridge and everything. And the cops Uh, said, you know what? Sorry. No, uh, there's a section in the FBI chapter in the book that talks about the Bundy Ranch case and how the and how the Justice Department and FBI lied for three years to keep uh, one or two of the Bundys in jail, claiming that the FBI had not surrounded their house with snipers. And then it turned out that, the, uh, that they finally admitted it in the discovery process for the criminal trial. And, and, and the federal judge put her boot way up their backside and threw the case out of court. Yep. And, um, but on the last day there, I mean, there was almost a shootout there's a heavily armed federal SWAT team there of, I'm not sure made up of which all joint task force types. And I get, I, the way I remember it with MP5s and AR-15s and then the militia guys were standing there in one big huddle and, um, and they had a sniper up on the bridge on the overpass as well. And the cops literally just like Homer Simpson in the hedge just start walking backwards. Actually, we're going to not do this today. And that was how that ended, was they backed down to armed civilians. Just exactly how it's supposed to work. Because as you say, as the judge later admitted when she threw out, angrily threw out the whole damn case, the cops were absolutely the aggressors there in every way. And what they were doing to this guy and his family was illegal. And, and, And folks forget that one of the big fears... The FBI had at Ruby Ridge was as the siege dragged out there, um, and, and that's after the feds had killed uh, uh, Vicki Weaver and 
after the marshals had shot Sandy Weaver in the back, that the feds were paranoid because there were more and more gun owners coming to that area, and the feds were worried about being surrounded. And Janet Reno, uh, ex po facto, changed her justification for the final assault at Waco two years afterwards. She said that the biggest concern was that people would be coming to surround uh, uh, gun activists and um, you know uh, supporters of the branch of idiots would be coming to Waco and putting the feds in danger. So that's why she had to send in the tanks and gas the children. Right. And which, of course, was a lie that somehow the it Texas was, Rangers yeah. or the local McClellan County Sheriff's Department couldn't handle that themselves. Absolutely. It was a it was a scam from the get go. And it's a very chilling site to go there and uh, and see that simple little sign. This is a vault where the women and children were gassed. Yeah, I know you just went there recently and wrote a piece for us at the Institute about that. I was shocked. I was shocked and sad. It is Thank something. Thank God for the, ways I would never would have found it. Yeah, you know, the contrast between like, ah, oh, here I am on a nice day out on the prairie, and geez, this is where you guys did all of that, huh? <laughs> you know, it's yeah, kind of um, incongruent. Just, yeah, there was a vibe. I was with a friend, and she said that she sense that there were ghosts there, but she's Celtic, so she's always seeing ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, anyway, yeah, Waco. Look, isn't that the thing, Jim, is that this is the government that'll do Waco to you. I mean, that's what Bill Hicks said in his bit. You know, he goes on about the IRS, and he goes on about Waco and some a few other things in Rantney Minor, and he goes, look, the lesson is the state always wins, and they'll bust your house down. They'll kill you. They'll burn you. And they will always win. You lose. You're not free. And yeah, well, it's, that's basically the deal. Well, um, at one level, yes. On the other level, if the feds play their cards too too hard, then there's going to be a backlash. I, I think of uh, Congressman Jack Brooks. He was chairman of the House of Judiciary Committee. In 1994, he was quoted as saying that the uh, burning of death was too good for the Branch Davidians. And he ended up being defeated when he ran for re-election to Congress that fall. So, Well, that was good. I didn't know that part of it, that that was what led to his defeat, you think? I think it was part of it. I mean, yeah. there was just such arrogance. Uh, and there were a lot of gun rights groups and Republicans who were able to convince Americans that they would be uh, put a leash on uh, the federal government. Yeah, well, you see how that worked out. It's a hell of an empire to try to wrestle with, even for the committed. Um, well, that's true, but it's but it's always fun to make jokes about it. Well, you got that right, and this book is full of them. And, you know, that's a, good, a great selling point, I think, always has been of your writing, is it's uh, pummeling of facts and information and read it and weep, true history of our time. And yet, at the same time, you let us off the hook with a good laugh. Every few pages, too. And you do. You you succeed. It's always great. And um, I can't tell you, Jim, how proud I am that the Institute got to publish this book, that you let us do it, that you gave us a privilege, the opportunity to put this book out. And for whatever stupid technical snafu reasons, the printers aren't giving us the hardback yet, although maybe by the time people hear this, it'll be out. But they can definitely Good. get it in paperback and Kindle on Amazon.com right now. And then it should be, if we clicked all the right boxes, I haven't checked, but it should be up on Barnes & Noble and Target and a few others by now, too. So uh, oh, that's great. That's great. For the I, Amazon I haters out there. there. Yeah. Excellent. 
Well, I, I thanks so much for publishing the book. It's been great working with you and uh, and uh, Ben Parker and Mike Dvorsky and Grant Smith and um, uh, uh, Harley. And it's just great, you know. Um, it's um, it's good that we made it work and that it, the uh, you know there was a lot of uh, bumps along the road, but what the hell? At least uh, you know, at least y'all were not horrified by the ideas. Yeah. Oh, hell no. We're all Bovardians here, man, for sure. And, well, um, so and much. very proud to be a part of this work. So go and get it, everybody. God dang it. Shameless. There's no shame involved. Plug for this. Last Rites, The Death of American Liberty by the great James Bovard. Thank you, man. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.